0: Yeah, I, I was a, a chronic bellend um, through and through. Um, and I, I did the shouty thing. I learned a lot from, you know, um, The Apprentice, as I'm sure most founders do. They think that that's what the working world looks like. You know, It really isn't, it really isn't. Um, and if it does look like that, then run, because that is a toxic workplace, right? Um, I, I was so unaware of how I was behaving because I just assumed this is the right way to be. I've always, at my core, believed that I'm fundamentally a good person, But sometimes good people do dumb things on poor advice or poor assumptions. You've all been there. Yeah. (laughs) And I had to do a lot of self-reflection in 2017, 2018, um, and I realized I need to change my attitude in a big way. Otherwise, I'm going to never get to where i want to be, one. And two, I'm going to piss everyone off around um, in the process.
1: Welcome to another episode of Big Risk Energy. And on this episode, I am blessed to be joined by the one and only Joe Cole. Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So, Joe, give everyone a quick introduction to yourself.
0: Yeah, sure. So, I'm the... Founder and group CEO of Encore Group, uh, we're a marketing and technology agency scaling to a 1,500 headcount group across the UK, US, mainland Europe over the course of the next 12 to 18 months, um, doing that through a combination of MA and and organic growth. Um, I'm also the founder of a uh, technology called Pulse, um, which is an AI tool that predicts the emotional responses of audiences to creative content before they see it.
1: Amazing! Super exciting! All right, tons of stuff that I want to dive into there. Sure. So, actually, just to kick off, um, with that technology you mentioned there, Pulse, mm. it, are you technical yourself? Is that a, a solution you guys have built in house? What, what does that look like?
0: God, I'm not technical. No. Yeah. Okay. Um, not not to the extent the, the rest of the team is. Right. Um, we have some very very competent people on the machine learning team um, who've been building out some very complex algorithms we've actually just had our second paper published Mm -hmm. um tail end of last week um so yeah that's that's incredibly exciting i'm not a technical founder by any stretch um my job is more to translate what the machine learning team is saying to the rest of the team and what it means materially from a product perspective.
1: Nice, okay, cool. So as a non-technical founder, how did you approach building out a machine learning team? Because it's a difficult thing to do. Um, I'm, I'm very product-led, but not a technical founder at all, uh, and it was a
0: steep learning curve in terms of hiring engineering heads. How did you approach that? What did that all look like for Pulse? having a really good recruitment team was really important. Um, So our head of internal recruitment, Obi, um, has been handling all of that side of things. Um, He made a succession of very good hires. The thing is with the machine learning world, um, it's very small, Mm -hmm. very, very tight-knit. So everyone knows everyone, and if there's an interesting project that someone's working on, it's generally sort of like a WhatsApp group um, message to other people in the industry, um, saying, you know, hey, you might be interested in a role over here so when you get the first one or two through the door more talent starts to follow Mm -hmm. um and that's what we found so that's how we started building our rml team
1: yeah that makes sense and from an ideation perspective did you emanate that idea yourself or because often the times is with non-technical founders and i've definitely been i would not say guilty of doing this Mm -hmm. i think it's a good thing sometimes being non-technical at such a granular level allows for delusion yeah. and for Comple- big picture yeah. thinking because like yeah well, that sounds feasible without understanding the complexities of it yeah it's sometimes really useful because you can think big so from an ideation perspective was that idea with you or was that actually i want to bring in some really interesting ml heads and see what they've got to say because i think um that, that would be a really interesting one to understand
0: I, I i came up with the idea um it was middle of 2020 um peak of the pandemic. Um, and I was driving a van um with the media team um at the agency. And we were talking about content and generally how people perceive things and like, you know, how we measure impact on um on the creative content that we output. Um and, and we've used a number of tools throughout the years that are centered around sentiment analysis. Mm-hmm. And the penny kind of dropped while I was in the van. Um, I don't know why. I seem to have some really good ideas when I'm driving. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we, we were focused more on looking retroactively at content, seeing how it had performed, and then making human judgments on how it would likely perform in the future. And that's how all agencies work, right? It's predicated on the knowledge of the individual, and you have to trust the knowledge of the individual to deliver the best content. But we realized, well, predictive models exist, right? Why can't we make a predictive model centered around human emotion Mm -hmm. for creative content? Um, And that's all where it kind of started, and sentiment analysis in itself has got inherent flaws. Mm -hmm. It's not the most accurate tool in the world, in spite of the fact that it is technically 98% accurate. Mm -hmm. It's not actually that accurate. the reason for that being, if you were to say someone feels negatively about something, what does that actually mean? Do they feel angry or sad or confused or hurt or any one of a number of you know other negative emotions um, and and that can be interpreted in a multitude of different ways mm. um, so the accuracy while saying someone is negatively you know perceiving a piece of content at ninety eight percent accuracy is correct. it doesn't give enough context. Mm. Um, So our model was built on the predication of emotional analysis. Mm -hmm. So we've built out and generally coined the terminology emotional analysis. Um, And from there, um, we built our predictive model on top of it so that we can identify the exact emotion that audiences are feeling about a specific piece of content, um, about a specific brand, at a specific moment in time, Taking into consideration real-world events that are happening mm. in the moment, real time, sort of within 15 minutes, um, and then predicting outcome from that. Okay. Um, yeah. So
1: yeah. No, that makes it makes a ton of sense. Um, so with the amount of sentiment analysis tools that are out there, and I know there's uh, a couple of companies that I looked at, a few doing it for, you know, lots of different things. But this one particularly was looking, or specifically was looking at um, small to mid market cap. Uh, aim listed equities, and doing sentiment analysis across, uh, you know, the most popular Twitter accounts for, you know, stock trades, and there's there's lots of sentiment analysis out there. I think it originally started off more with sort of the fintech element, finance element, mm. which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so what drove you to say, well, we would need to build our own solution rather than using technology which is available uh, in, you know, in the
0: existing market? Because we'd use the stuff that was out there and it mm-hmm. wasn't delivering accurate enough results. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was still the opportunity for human error. Um, and that, that was the main issue that we faced, right? Like, th- there's no problem with humans being involved in a process and making decisions. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I'm very pro having people involved in that decision-making process, but if they can't be guided by anything other than retroactive data, the propensity for someone to make more mistakes becomes mm-hmm. way more prevalent. Um, so, giving someone the data and analytics that they need to understand, you know, what could happen or what the risk profiles are, um, becomes super important. I mean, like the, the best example that I give when I talk about this is um, the 2016 ad um, with Pepsi of course. And Kendall Jenner. <laughs> Really piss-poor timing um, in terms of like how, um, uh, geopolitically, it it was just the worst timing um, Mm. for that ad. Now, if there were an alert system to say that a specific quotient of that content has a severely negative um, outlook Mm. um, and gave you some kind of pre-warning before the content went live, that would be brand protection mm-hmm. and you know damage limitation rather than oh sorry damage prevention rather mm-hmm. than damage limitation, um, and all sentiment analysis tools on the market that we've used um, you know quite extensively from a marketing standpoint um, do not have any sort of brand protection or damage prevention element to it. It's all about damage limitation. Looking back retroactively after something's gone out. Mm. um and wouldn't it be nice if you could stop damage from happening in the first place of course absolutely okay interesting so
1: are you planning to then use this technology primarily for you know your internal agency because to me if you've built a more accurate sentiment analysis analysis tool for the market surely the applications of that are much wider and potentially much a much bigger company selling that into financial institutions right
0: Yes. Um, It is commercially available. Mm. Um, 50 agencies have taken it on as our founder members so far. Um, They're going through the beta trials right now. We're building out new tools, new functionality, week on week, month on month. Um, So come middle of next year, we should be in a position where we have a full-service suite tool that not only provides predictive emotional uh, uh, analytics, but also provides... um, content scheduling, content posting, real-time data, pull back into the platform, Mm -hmm. SEO analysis, PR analysis, the works, right? So it will be a full 360 marketing service provision in a SaaS tool platform. SaaS is a dirty word, I know, but, you know, in in, in a platform that It shouldn't be. It shouldn't shouldn't be. be.
1: It's it's generated, like... 90% 90% of shareholder value over the last 25 years of technology, well, I think it's a good thing.
0: For sure, SaaS and AI at the minute have got a little bit of a, you know, uh scary approach, um, generally from a public perception perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in terms of what we're doing, I think it's important to remember that while it is commercially available, our value is derived from the intellectual property, more mm-hmm. so, and for the group, um, yeah. you know the The benefit to us building this tool is we are an agency. We know what the requirements are for the mm. tool and what's going to actually add value. So other people who get access to the tool um, will benefit from not just you know, techs in the background thinking this would this would be a good idea commercially. It's also you know, people who actually are using the tool and understand the inherent value that's being provided by it. Mm. Um, so yes, it's a mutually advantageous thing. From a customer profile perspective, um, you know, there, there are a couple of tools on the market, and, and the most prevalent one, um, their entry price point is six grand upfront for a year for like, the most basic functionality mm-hmm. that they have. Our entry point is exactly the same, except they pay monthly, £500 a month. Um, mm. So making it more cash liquidity-wise appealing and approachable for smaller agencies. But it can scale all the way up to you know custom API endpoints that integrate directly into other businesses' platforms.
1: Okay, really nice. Very, very cool. I'm ex- I would love to have a look at it at some yeah, point. It'd be, sure. it'd be exciting to see. So we, we spoke about employee well-being before. Mm. Currently at around 50 heads yep. in the business with big plan scale to uh, 30 times that. 30 times that? Is that right?
0: Don't ask me yes, to do 30 times. Time, 30
1: times. There you go. <laughs> um, 30 times that. Now, from my experience in scaling companies, you know, real sport, we were like 130, 140 people globally connected. We're now about 100 and... and you know, big growth plans over the next couple of years, the difference in culture, employee well-being, just everything, right? From an organizational perspective, you know, one to 10, 10 to 50, 50 to 100, very, very different in terms of what's required and also what works at some stage doesn't necessarily work for another. So I'd love to know about your approach to employee well-being and how you think
0: that scales to 30x over the next bit of time. Yeah, yeah. Well-being and operational functionality of a business are two very separate things, Mm. in my view. Um, Operationally, it's very easy to predict how you can build out a business and what you're gonna need in terms of systems, controls, processes, et cetera. And we're always thinking at least six months in advance of where we need to be and having the architecture ready way in advance so that when that moment happens, we can switch to a new system that everyone can adopt quickly. From a well-being perspective, Operationally, it does help um, because, um, you know, when you don't have good systems and processes in place, people tend to get more stressed at work and tend to be you know, under more pressure. Um, but the bigger issue, I think, is that the marketing industry has got some, some big players in it who really have a pretty dire approach to employee well-being. Um, I mean, everyone in the industry will be aware of, you know, the expectation of juniors in particular being in the office from seven o'clock in the morning until eight o'clock at night. And if they aren't doing that, then they're not showing commitment to the company. And therefore, they're not going to get considered for a promotion and blah, 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 all the other all the other crap that comes with that. Um, That's bollocks. It's complete bollocks. Um, The way in which someone provides value is through learning, through consistent development. Um, and particularly from a junior's perspective, if they are being put through this system of incredibly intense work for, frankly, some, like, disgusting pay. What are we talking about? What, to, to quantify in terms of like from pay? From a pay perspective? Yeah, yeah. What I mean, some of the it? agencies, big agencies in London, are paying juniors 19 grand a year. Wow. Right? And the um, junior is, what, someone, like, post-university? Like... Uh, yeah, post-uni or, you know, they've just come out of a couple of internships. Right, okay. Right? So, yeah. like, they've already shown commitment to the workplace, but they're then having to go in at 19 grand a year, which, by the way, really doesn't help with diversity quotas. Well, it's unlivable for It's It's unlivable. 19K, right? I mean, it doesn't it's even just... cover the train fare. Like, yeah. if you live far out enough, like, yeah. what are you supposed to do with that? Yeah. Um... It, so it completely kills any sort of diversity quotient, restricts it to people who are from a very privileged background mm-hmm. and their parents are able to afford to assist in right. you know their career development. And there's nothing wrong with that, but there is something wrong with the fundamental architecture of prohibiting people from having mm. any sort of opportunity to enter a workplace because of pay. Mm. Um, so, you know, we don't operate on that basis. Um, we provide... You know a very clear structure um, in terms of upskilling and we're working on that consistently as well um, employee learning is a big part of the journey particularly at a junior level um, we need to ensure that they're given the resources and access to other people within the company training materials whatever it may be um, and you know we're working on developing out even more training materials um, even more courses etc for people internally so that they can get the most out of their early part of their career um, but we absolutely do not expect anyone to start at 7 o'clock in the morning, finish at 8 o'clock at night. Quite the mm. contrary. Uncle um, UK, in particular, is a four-day week company. Um, we have a start time of 9 o'clock and a finish time of 6.30. Um, but I could not give a flying F, like, what time people get in, what time they leave. If the work is done, then it's done. Mm. Like, you know, I that, that is our deliverable right? Our deliverable isn't time, it's value. Mm-hmm. Um, and what um, if the work takes longer than from 9 to 6.30? It shouldn't. Mm. It shouldn't. And then that's an operational failure, mm-hmm. right? It's not a failure of the individual. It's a failure to identify how much time or risk is associated with any quotient of work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we measure things in Agile points. Um, we're going to be rolling that out across the entire group. Um, and, you know, from, from that point, perspective you can identify uncertainty and you have to allow for uncertainty in how long something is going to take if it's something that's very simple and someone has been given multiple very simple tasks to do and we've proven time and time again that they are capable of delivering that in say an hour-long slot mm-hmm. but the individual's taking longer it's either an operational failure on our part to identify how long that individual needs or a lack of support and architecture behind the individual Very rarely do I find that it's actually the individual not pulling their weight. Mm. Like, that's a very rare occurrence. Mm. Um, And I think it's important that employers, when they take someone on, they know that they've taken that person on because they trust them. Not because, you know, um, they're just hiring whoever comes through the door. You know there's there's a very lengthy recruitment process why are you killing all of that time energy and resource when you've made a decision on who is coming in through your doors give them everything give them the resources that they need to succeed because otherwise they're going to be in a position where they're going to feel disenfranchised they're going to feel unvalued or undervalued at least um and then what, what, where does that leave you? You have to then go out and find someone else to replace them anyway, and from a cost perspective, it costs significantly more to hire someone new in, um, particularly from a recruitment fees perspective, onboarding, training, all that sort of stuff, um, than it does for you to just put some more resources behind the person who's just come in your door and, and made a commitment to work with you. Um, so looking at it from more of a human angle um, in, in the marketing industry, I think it's a really important thing that we need to start doing more.
1: Mm, it's, it's really, really interesting. And out of interest, how long has it? Um, how long have you guys driven to fifty people? What What's that sort of rate of expansion look like?
0: It's been mixed. Um, okay. It's been like six and a half years yeah. um, that Uncle UK has been trading. Mm-hmm. Um, COVID was okay at the start, and then twenty twenty one was rough, mm. very rough. Um, we have never made anyone redundant. I'm very happy to be able to say that um but you know it, it was a difficult period um so yeah six and a half years to scale to where we are but factoring in some of the other more challenging periods of time you know you could condense it down to four years but I, again i don't think rate of expansion on headcount is a metric that i want to measure our success by no no no. of you course know, it's I, like a vanity metric right
1: no it is it is absolutely absolutely is um, but the interesting challenge is scaling at speed, mm. right? And I think that's where, um, at least from you know tech founder perspective, where you're, let's say you put the trigger down, you're you're going mm. to go to do a big expansion. I suppose with an M and A led expansion, it's slightly different because then actually you're acquiring you know x amount of companies with their own you know existing cultures, and it's not actually trying to change the culture of all these organizations that, that you're, you're purchasing but mm. from like a hyperscaling perspective and, and some of the companies that i've invested in speaking to founders there where they've gone you know from one year a hundred to a thousand people mm. you know in a year i think it's such a different type of cultural strain organizational strain mm. where actually um people won't pull their weight you know uh, when, you, when you're getting to that level because in life right two percent of people are lazy let's say you know what i mean like that will then always factor
0: into the business model
1: yeah, I've got, 100% you do. But I think the net effect of that is then actually when people are waiting around for other people to deliver work, which their responsibilities are dependent on, then it gets quite difficult to maintain that. Well, how do we say, you know, you're only gonna have to work this this much time and you know, and it, it, though I think that those are really interesting challenges, but you're right, that that's part of the fun, right, is how do you maintain really positive culture? How do you maintain uh, a place which has incredibly high retention, where people love to work, where you don't have to make redundancies, when the reality of hyperscaling is you're going to, you're not going to be able to afford as much time in the recruitment process, because it would be impossible to scale at that level if you did, just from a time frame perspective. Um, realize, therefore, you're going to have to, you know, lose x percent of people who aren't up to the 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 very high standards that you know exceptional company would set and then creating psychological safety across an entire culture where that's you know part of the mission right
0: it's not perfect Mm. right no employer is perfect no scenario is perfect um all we can do is our best Mm. um through and through and try to put people first at every touch point um it's very easy to say um, put people first, but we're in bed with private equity, and obviously profit is going to come first mm-hmm. from their perspective. Um, however, my entire thesis that I've been arguing our business plan on with the private equity fund um, for the last three years—we've um, been in discussion. Oh, wow. So it's been a long time coming. Um, this well, is congrats, like this man! I'm happy you.
1: for you. That's that's three um, years. Is not uh, that must be a lot of anxiety and stress. Yeah, a little bit. Years. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, but um, the, the the entire basis that. I agreed to all of these terms on is that we have full operational control um, we have to deliver profit obviously we're a business otherwise we wouldn't exist right um, but in the same breath if that comes to the detriment of the well-being of people mm-hmm. then we won't do it mm-hmm. um, if we look at an acquisition and we think well we can make um, make good on this acquisition or we can make more out of this company than is currently being delivered and that comes to the detriment of the people within the business, we won't do it. Um, And there are plenty of agencies out there that are ripe for some change, Um, but as far as I'm concerned, the people are integral to the success of any agency, and maintaining their culture, um, for me, is is part and parcel of growing. While we have our own culture um, in Encore UK, I don't see it as a bad thing to absorb other cultures in and mm-hmm. be accepting of other cultures and you know in the same way as you would internationally.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, exactly that because I think that's uh, uh, such a great point. Ultimately there's so much nuance between the sensitivities of a of geographic locations that actually it's quite tone deaf to try and implement the same culture that works in this region in that region. So you're right, the reality of any scaling business which has international application and ambition is you're going to have to make, um, not compromises to culture, but uh, adjustments to culture to make it work for the people on the ground.
0: Our only fundamental basis that we will not budge on, depending on, you know, regardless of who we acquire or what assets we bring into the company, um, is we are an inclusive business. Mm-hmm. Um, we put people first um, and we put our ethics as front and center as possible um, through and through and that comes down to sustainability who we work with um, who are um, you know what our corporate structure looks like from a senior leadership perspective and how they're remunerated and the balance and equality between senior leadership remuneration and junior remuneration Mm -hmm. um, should never be more than 4x the lowest Mm -hmm. paid person within a team Mm -hmm. Um, and building out in that system is you know I think the fairest way to to build that out that may be a bit more of a culture shock in the US where there's more significant pay disparity Um, but I firmly believe that I would rather there be a fairer spread um, of pay in the US Mm -hmm. um, and across the entire group um, so that everyone has a fair shot um, Mm. and has a chance to live a decent quality of life
1: Nice, love that. You know, conceptually, couldn't agree more. That's really, really exciting to hear, and I think especially in industries where there are much fewer options to have that positivity and that sort of mindset. In the tech world, mm. stand up startups are, are, you know, for the most part, at least saying the right things and and trying to do that. But so my my only job ever was um, a six week internship with uh, an advertising agency. And just seeing that side of things and and a lot of the things you mentioned in terms of that very, very, very toxic culture. One of the most toxic cultures I've seen where the creative director was like screaming at people, losing his shit. And you're in for crazy hours making no money and it was like, cool. I'm never having a job. It was yeah. it was bad enough that I decided from that moment I would never have a job, let alone work in that, that, that industry again.
0: Which, with the greatest deal of respect, is what I'm trying to avoid. 100%, like, yeah. We're, we're breeding a talent crisis in the marketing mm-hmm. industry by treating people in the way that the industry has been for however many years. Mm. Um, and the worse you treat people, the less likely they are to stick around. The more the reputation gets worse of the industry, the less likely people are to ever want to join yeah. the industry. Yeah, yeah. Um and you know it comes with its own challenges already with AI. Um people are looking at the industry and thinking, well, that job could be automated, right? Rightly or wrongly, um they're viewing it as a risk factor. So risk on top of then having, you know, the challenges of um people being a dick in the workplace mm-hmm. is really impossible to to sustain and we will have a very significant talent crisis. Um, if we don't deal with that problem now.
1: Yeah, 100%. And I think every industry has a lot to learn there because the reality of Gen Z mm. is they're aware of the extensive options they have mm. to not go into a traditional workforce. Mm. And employers who don't understand that will struggle to hire that generation because if you treat them as like shit or you don't give them that work-life balance, mm. the things which, rightly or wrongly, they feel they're entitled to from from day one mm. they just won't come to work for you i gave a talk at a very large um real estate company mm. uh probably about this time last year and i'd speak a lot about neurodiversity ADHD, and dyslexia so i was coming in to talk about that i do it quite a lot and the hot topic the, the big q a that we had with that team that day was they were saying and this was a controversial one to, to broach should people be allowed or not be allowed to wear headphones whilst working. And it was like, okay, if that's, you know, still being discussed, I mean, that just shows how out of touch some of these traditional industries are, right? It's dumb. It's dumb, right? Dumb,
0: super dumb. (laughs) Like, uh, do you honestly believe that someone wearing a pair of headphones in the workplace is going to stop them from doing their work? Well, obviously not. Like, I mean, measure it, measure it, and prove yourself wrong. Stop imposing bizarre um theses on people that that have no foundation in truth whatsoever based on your own preconceived notions of what a worker should look like mm. you know um treat people like people for god's sake i mean like wearing headphones really it's pathetic i
1: know right completely I couldn't, pathetic. couldn't believe it and i think probably what's exciting about the industry that you're in well certainly compared to, to real estate and property is there was so there's so much inertia in that environment that actually even thinking about tracking that type of thing mm. is just off the table but I feel like ad tech Martech these these industries are quite open to to change in that way what, what's your view to change in the in terms of like bringing in for example new ways of measuring sentiment analysis versus the traditional way or versus I know best because I've been in the industry for 30 years which is what I saw in in the real estate environment let's say no <laughs> no no it's not All right um, okay. there are
0: some very draconian views that some agencies have um even some newer agencies operate on a traditional model because they've Mm. come out of a traditional model agency Mm. it's almost like they want to punish people who are coming into their business because they went through the same thing Mm. and they want to sort of have them experience what they think you know agency life should be um uh, no no they're not i mean like a good example about that is the four-day work week Um, so we've had the four day work week since middle of 2021, Mm -hmm. um, been a tremendous success and I've spoken about it at length a number of times. However, a lot of people in the agency world view that as a weakness and, um, view it as well, we'll be working on your day off and you'll never be able to catch up with us. Were almost verbatim the words of a senior executive in quite a large agency group. Um, that was recently acquired. Um, They don't know what they're talking about. They're not measuring, they don't have any idea, they are not open to new ideas, um, and they have their own preconceived notions on what not only an agency should look like, but what the workplace should look like. And that is dumb, because it always results in a lack of development um, and a lack of growth. That's why we're building out the group. Um, I firmly believe that we have built an architecture around us that is replicable um, from an operational standpoint um, and has significant upside um, for everyone involved. Um, but a lot of agencies just aren't open to taking the plunge or the risk. And I get it. The bigger you get, obviously, the bigger the risk is. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's nice that we've had the opportunity to iterate and find our solutions at a smaller scale mm. but now we can ramp that up mm. um so as an industry i look it's perceived as being more open to new ideas and more open to you know development of what the workplace could look like it's not always the case sometimes it is but not always okay okay that makes
1: sense and with the four-day work week do you take four? Do the four-day work week as well
0: me yeah no um, yeah, I, I don't because I split my time between, effectively, two companies, mm. um, which is... So you're group. only doing
1: four days within each one, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> eight <day. laughs> sure, <Nice. laughs> eight-day weeks.
0: Yeah. Um, eight I, day weeks, um, exactly. I uh, Yeah, I split my time be- between the two companies, um, as in between the group and between the AI technology, um, particularly because um, the AI technology is in its early stages and I need to be there. Um, my goal is to build out a senior leadership team around that business um, at some point in the future, mm-hmm. um, so that my involvement doesn't have to be quite as hands-on. Um, but in the same breath, I really enjoy it. So, like you know, um, I see it as me having two jobs. I right? understand that. And do you have shared staff between them, or is it there? There is a bit of blending at okay, the minute. Interesting, um, interesting. We are building out a dedicated team mm. um, for Pulse. so. Yeah, there is a little bit of um, blending between the two companies at the minute. Um, But I think that, you know, that's an advantage from our perspective because you've got people who have worked in a marketing agency really Mm -hmm. understand the day-to-day minutiae working on a product that is designed for marketing agencies. Um, So, you know, the more we progress, moving forward it will become its own dedicated team
1: yeah yeah. okay interesting interesting because I um because I, I was thinking about the four-day work week and I was mm-hmm. thinking about the nine-day fortnight so do you know Sam Franklin from Otter remind me uh, so Otter AI really, really good recruitment yeah. tool sure. worth using yeah. so Sam's uh, a great guy and he was on the podcast and we were discussing that they do the mm-hmm. nine-day fortnight mm-hmm. and his conviction was um, he has to do the nine day fortnight as well otherwise you have you know, the most ambitious staff members are like, well, if the founder's not doing the nine day effort, I shouldn't do the nine day thing. Mm. And that's why we didn't do it here. Cause I was like ADHD. I was like, I, can, I will shoot myself <laughs> if I have to take a day off. So I was like, I can't yeah. do that. Cause then I'm going to create that, that thing on that side. But it's good to hear that works for you guys. And it's something I would love to, to, to learn more about.
0: Yeah. I mean, from, from my perspective, um particularly in the earlier days of us introducing the four day work week, there's, there's one individual in the company called Bruno mm-hmm. um, who is um, he's incredible. He's, he's a great guy. Love him to pieces, but he does not know when to stop at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and he got to a point where um, he was, um, he was working ridiculous hours, completely, unbeknownst to anyone in the team. Um, And he was coming in with all of this stuff and showcasing new product ideas and new development ideas, Um, developer. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm sure you can imagine, um, you know, working ridiculous hours as well. Um, He got to a point of exhaustion where I could see it in his eyes Mm -hmm. and we confiscated his laptop and made him go on holiday for two weeks. Love that. Um, So, you know, and like we, we try as best as we can to practice what we preach. Um if someone does something without telling us of their own volition and you know we have no idea, there's only so much yeah. control we can impose. Of course. Um, but you know I, I want to make sure that people have got a good work-life balance and we try and promote that as much as possible. It's, it's so important I've, I've burnt myself out, God knows how many times mm. since I started work and particularly even this year, I, I completely wrecked myself and like by July of this year I was a mess. Um, And the biggest issue I had with that was a laptop It was the worst thing for me the worst thing So I've gone back to sort of early noughties approach and I've got a desktop now And that's all I use and I have my laptop for when I go away abroad Um, But when I stop work my work is on my desk and I don't pick it up until the next day And there is nothing so urgent that it needs to be done at 11 o'clock at night, as I kept on telling myself for years and years and years, I got to a point of just complete exhaustion mm. where I knew that if I didn't do something dramatic, I, di- I just didn't have control over my own time mm. at all. And it was like poor self-management, poor controls. And I think every founder experiences 100%, that.
1: hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think for, for it's, it's so interesting because I'm so guilty of this as well. I know for that my, my two companies, the first two years, I ran myself into the ground 18 hours a day. And as soon as you get through that period and you've hit a certain infrastructure and you're like, okay, got to take back control. And you're like, shit, I should have done that. I was hurting myself. I tell founders it's so important to do that. But I also know the reason we were able to do that, to get to that level was because, because you did
0: it. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a horrible and necessary yeah. part of the founding journey. Mm-hmm. But it's very difficult to shake that habit. It's mm-hmm. almost an addiction. Right. Oh, Um, massively. Yeah. And, and you get to a point where you are so tired and you can't work out why you're so tired. Even though if you look back in your calendar, (laughs) you've been working 18 hour days, seven days a week, barely sleeping because you're thinking about work every waking Mm day. Um, you know, you, you get to a point where you're like, "I, I need to slow down. And hopefully by that point, you've built out enough of a business, enough of an architecture that you can slow down a bit and pass things over to other people. Um, I, I I was an only founder.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, you yep.
0: know, no co-founder alongside me. Same, yeah. Um, how did you find that?
1: Oh, out of Bruce. Interest? I mean, the first time first time around I had a co-founder, mm. so thankful for that. Even though there was lots of um, you know, things that weren't necessarily optimum between me and my, my co-founder at the time, but just having someone there, mm. lifesaver. This mm. time around solo was was the right thing. Mm. The first time like it, yeah you, you yeah. Were you first time solo? first
0: time was with a co-founder right right um for three years um for various reasons we stopped working together mm-hmm. um but wasn't a good match yeah right and that often happens as well and i at the end of that three-year period looked back on it and thought shit i've just wasted three years of the early part of my career um building something with someone who was the wrong person to partner with and i i was in like a very depressed state about mm. that um, But I knew that if I was going to have complete control over what I wanted to do and building things in the shape of how I wanted to build them, I had to go it alone, Um, which was also a deluded thought because the reality is you never build alone. As soon as you make a hire, whether they're a founder, -founder, co-founder, non-exec or, you know, just a person within your team, um, you are building with them. Um so now I'm not one of one, I'm one of fifty. Mm-hmm. Um and by tail end of next year, hopefully I'll be one of fifteen hundred. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, it's it's the old adage, isn't it? If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Absolutely. Um yeah. so I don't think having a co founder is a necessity and it's not right for everyone. Mm-hmm. But remember that you should be treating everyone that works for you or who is in your sphere of influence. Mm-hmm as a stakeholder because yes. that's what they are
1: 100% and I genuinely believe even uh, having the wrong co-founder the first time round I think the founding experience and all, even when it comes down to like founder agreements and the shareholders agreements and all of those things that you go through I think having that partner at the start assuming that that partner is at least on the journey with you I can't you know even though me and my old co-founder were not the best matched, we were both 100% committed, both 100% in, and having that sounding board where you have equity uh, and parity in the way that you're approaching something was super useful for me. We could do this for five hours, but I've got five questions <laughs> that I'm <I've> going <laughs> Go to uh, ask everyone. So my first question for you is, what is the single biggest risk you've ever taken,
0: and what was the outcome? single biggest risk I've ever taken was founding Encore. mm mm-hmm. um, and the outcome I'll let you know in a year and a half. <laughs> Love that, okay, part two to be continued. What are you proudest of? Personal pride is not something I really thrive in. Um, I'm, I'm proud of my team. I'm proud of what we've built and I'm proud of the ethos that we've taken on um, You know, in, in how we're building this out, how we're trying to make an active difference.
1: Nice, okay, very well put. Is there anything that you wish you did differently? Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Every day. <laughs> um, yeah, I, the, the way in which I've built things out, um, some of the people I've trusted throughout the years, mm. um, you know, the um, the way I was when I started working, um, I was a dick. I was an absolute dick. And I learned how to be a businessman, from what you saw on tv mm. and i think that that was such a depressing view and it made me sad it made everyone around me sad and that was probably one of the biggest lessons i've learned um in terms of like what to not do
1: wow that's 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 so interesting so when did that happen and what did you do to really unpack that mm. and start changing the way that you approach things it's really fascinating i would love to, to learn
0: yeah i i was a a chronic bell end, um, through and through. Um, and I, I did the shouty thing. I learned a lot from, you know, um, the apprentice as I'm sure most founders do. Mm-hmm. They think that that's what the working world looks like. You know, it really isn't. It really isn't. Um, and if it does look like that, then run. Cause that mm-hmm. is a toxic workplace. Right. Um, I, I was so unaware of how I was behaving because I just assumed This is the right way to be. I've always, at my core, believed that I'm fundamentally a good person. But sometimes good people do dumb things on poor advice or poor assumptions. We've all been there. Yeah. And I had to do a lot of self-reflection in 2017, 2018. um, And I realized I need to change my attitude in a big way. Otherwise, I'm going to never get to where I want to be, one. And two, I'm going to piss everyone off around me um, in the process. Um, wow, I
1: really respect that. And thank you for the, the, the honesty there. Damn. It's not an easy thing to um, you know, talk about where we started to where we, we got to. So w- what did that look like in terms of um, – raising that self-awareness injecting consciousness into the way that you operate in organizations because you know for me I was a very different person growing up and similarly had to do those things but still sometimes we can slip into old habits and we need to stay so vigilant to stay on top of those things what did that journey look
0: like i pushed myself to a very unhealthy point um i i Realized how much of a bell end I was being when I started to see my health deteriorate. Wow. Um, and at such a young age, yeah. I shouldn't have had anything close to what I did. Um, but, you know, I was very skinny at one point, um, weighed probably 15, 20 kilos less than I should have. Wow. Um, and that was all a byproduct of just who I was. Um, as a person, I I was kind of hating myself in the same way as I was projecting this anger. And I had to take a lot of time for self-reflection and really force myself for a period of time to remind myself to put people first Mm -hmm. in everything that I did. And now it's natural. Now it's very rare that I even raise my voice um, we have a no shouting rule in the office. There's no need to shout in an nice. office. There's nothing that's like that dramatic or deep. <laughs> no one's gonna die, <laughs> right? Um, it's um, important to just, you know, be honest. And also I think founders founders beat themselves up a lot um, and want to be perceived as these perfect entities. Mm. We're not, we're imperfect, we're still human. Um, you know, unless you want to be seen as like a Mark Zuckerberg of the world and a bit robotic in your approach. Um, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think, you know, if you can hold your hands up when you've made a mistake or when you've done something wrong and admit to that and learn from it, that's all part of a growing process. Um, hopefully there aren't too many significant learnings for me uh, coming up, but I'm sure there will be. And things that I'm not aware I'm doing wrong now that I will learn um, in the future. Um but it's all part of the journey. I think just being honest with yourself and honest with the people around you is how you progress and develop as an individual.
1: Yeah, I think that's such an important point for any founder listening and, and you put it so so well there. But you're right, we're all human beings and humans are, are light and dark and there is so much pressure on, on founders, CEOs, especially on, um, when it comes to like brand building and these things to put forward like a perfect image. Mm-hmm. But it's not possible, it's not reality. And, they're, and trying to embody that Mm. rather than appreciating that that might be a public persona, for example, Mm -hmm. I think is very, very dangerous. Mm. um, Because then people feel very disappointed in themselves when they're not perfect, Mm. whereas none of us are. Mm. Uh, Again, we could do this for five hours. Um, (laughs) So my my second to last question for you is, what does it take to be successful?
0: Oh, that's a loaded question. Um, What does it take to be successful? It takes, um, firstly, for you to define what success looks like to you, more than you know, um, some sort of arbitrary statement of how to be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone's image of success is different. Um, I worry for younger generations who are growing up with content that's all centered around, "Hey, this is how you can make ten grand a month using Amazon FBA or some mm-hmm. shit like that," um, because that's a deluded view of what success is. You know, success to someone is building a family. Um, and having a peaceful life in the countryside or, you know, having a having a nice, easy, chilled life. But if success is fiscal to you, um, you also have to factor in other things that are important in your life. Is your family important to you? Are your relationships important to you? Are your friends important to you? And a lot of people will say, you've got to sacrifice friendship. You've got to sacrifice mm-hmm. those relationships. Dumb. Dumb, dumb, dumb. Like... Uh, being a founder is a lonely enough place as it is. Mm-hmm. If you cut out your relationships, as I did when I was younger, um, to the pursuit of success, you won't get anywhere very quickly um, because you're leaving the majority of, you know, um, the majority of your value um, off the table um, because you don't have those personal relationships to, to build who you are as a person on anymore. Um, Sorry, I'm giving a very long and convoluted answer to this. No, 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 no at all. But fundamentally, I think, you know, what does it take to be successful is to first define what successful looks like to you. Have that as your North Star. Write it down on a piece of paper if you need to. Mm -hmm. Have it above your bed or whatever, like as you're walking out the door next to your door every morning. And remind yourself that that is who you are um, with everything that you do. And stick to that. Um, And you know, you may never make it to the North Star, but the journey along the way will be so much truer to who you are as a person. And therefore, you will have a successful journey rather than a successful ending. Love that, okay.
1: My last one for you is 15-year-old Joe walks in the room right now, what are you gonna tell him?
0: Um, Don't be a dick. Um, 15 years old, I I had, you know, that that was at the advent of Wolf of Wall Street coming out, right? And you know, The Apprentice was probably at its peak, and um, I also weirdly had ambitions to be a lawyer at that point in time for some bizarre reason. Um, probably suits. Yeah, probably suits. Yeah, also good. <laughs> yeah, you're quite right. <laughs> um, shit, I never made that connection. Um, the The way in which. Um, I viewed life at that point in time was so skewed. I'd remind myself to be open to other people's ideas and to listen more than I spoke. Um, I often had an opinion about things that I had no idea about. um, And I'm glad that over time I've learned more and I've grown as a person. Um, And I'd remind myself that, you know, life is complex and it can't all be boiled down to your point of view.
1: Joe, you're a legend. Where can people find you? It's a good question. If you want to be found
0: (laughs) as well. Uh, On LinkedIn, uh, Joe Call, uh, K-A-U-L. I don't use any other socials really, but uh, yeah, that's my main port of call. Amazing. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you.
1: Thanks for watching the episode. And if you haven't subscribed, please hit subscribe below so that you can support the podcast and we can keep on bringing you amazing new guests. If you want to see the other amazing episodes in this podcast, click into our series section. As ever, if there are any other guests or topics you want us to explore, just let me know in the comments and we'll do our best to bring someone in.